welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we talk about what's next for activism now we have a US president who understands science. We speak to activist Shia Bastida, and we have music from Millie Turner. Thanks for being here. So guys, as the world continues to recover from the trauma that was the US election with the outcome that is seeming increasingly exciting, but but um, as according to President Trump, not yet conclusive, although I think he might be the only one who feels that, what is clear is that one of the major elements that transported Biden to the White House was a massive youth turnout. As far as I can see, most of the data suggests it was the highest youth turnout for like 40 years. And Finally! Finally, exactly. And they really understood what the issue was. And central to that was Biden's commitment to deal with climate. As John Podesta said to us the other day, he closed on climate and often presidential candidates close on the issue that is most central to their candidacy. So all very exciting, but it poses a a very interesting question now. How should activists respond to finally having that success and having someone in that position of power who understands their issues, but inevitably will not be able to go as far as they would like? And I think that's now an interesting question that people who care about this issue are going to have to grapple with. What do you guys think? (laughs) Well, you know, the way you you, um, set that up, Tom, reminds me um, of the end of one of the three cops that we had in Poland. Uh, and uh, my daughters were with me and it was a very, very difficult cop to get to agreement to. And at the end, we finally, finally got agreement. Uh, obviously, when you have 195 nations, it's, it usually goes down to the bare minimum, right? Um, but nonetheless, it was the necessary. It was the necessary step that had to be taken in order to move forward the next year. So I get to my hotel room totally exhausted after uh, three weeks of being there, two in negotiation. And I'm about to plop into bed and uh, my daughters say, mom, bad news. And I go, what's the bad news? Well, the youth here think it is completely, completely a disaster what has been agreed. And we're going to go out and we're going to demonstrate against this. And we're going to be going to the press and say, this is completely insufficient. And I thought, well, thank God. Yeah. You know, thank God. Because the fact is, yes, we took a step. And given the complexity of geopolitics and everything else, the fact that it was in Poland, among other things, it was definitely brought down to the bare minimum. Yes, we took the one necessary step, but we definitely didn't take the 10 or 20 or 30 steps that could have been possible had we had a different um, dynamic. And so I just think, yes, rejoining the Paris Agreement is procedural for the United States. Yes, rolling back the rollbacks um, is critical. But, but we need people who are constantly putting up, the planting the flag of emergency, of yep. much more ambition, of, uh, of much more um, action and higher environmental integrity. We totally need, well, young people plus others not so young, to plant that flag ahead of us because otherwise we just disappear into complacency and Mm. that's not going to cut it. And that's interesting, right? Because, I mean, arguably, that's one of the things that happened 12 years ago with the election of Obama. There was such a wave of joy that finally there was somebody there who understood this. And 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 if you look back now, some analysis I've read suggests that the kind of the activist groups 
sort of felt they could relax a bit because now there was someone there who had their agenda and not to say he didn't do everything he could, but actually, of course, it wasn't everything they hoped for. And I think later people wished they'd kept engaging and kept pushing for what they knew was possible, but is not guaranteed, right? There's going to be a very complicated agenda um, on, on the desk of the new president. What do you think, Paul? Well, first of all, just remembering on that particular point, I think it was Jane Fonda said that, uh, yeah, that when Obama won, we all just kind of started watching TV, you know, and that's right. not, you know, that doesn't work. You know, it's not like just because there's this nice guy. Unless Jane Fonda's on TV, right? Oh, well, there you go. No, that's a whole totally different thing. <laughs> Listen, by the way, just before we jump into this discussion, I want to share, I'm going to share my, my opinion in a minute. But I mean, we're on tenderhood. I mean, like, really, like it happened, like it actually happened. Like, I know we called it last week and everything like that. But I, I think it really sank in for me last night when uh, when I watched um, Stephen Colbert, who's who's held me through, you know, I've had a big hug from him, uh, along with a couple of million other people all through these four crazy years. And I switched on and he's there with a bottle of champagne and two glasses. And I actually had a little beer in my hand. And as he lifted his, I lifted mine and... That was big. And yeah, you know, there has been dancing in the street, you know, across the world. So let's just, I just wanted to kind of like not forget what's happened. All right. So to this point, um, I think we're yeah, talking hold about. On, Paul, hold on, because you know what Tom did to me to talk about dancing in the streets. So we finally get confirmation <laughs> that we have a newly minted president. And I start jumping up and down in what I thought was the privacy of my own home. Tom records this. Oh, we got film. You've got film. Got- <laughs> and, and he puts it out on social media. Oh, so good. That's am, good. I have lost all my decorum in the public eye. Not uh, so. And, Not so. This is very decorous thing to do. And, and, and so many people have seen me jumping up and down and screaming. Thank you, Tom Karnako. You're, you're, you're very welcome. Well, I couldn't resist it because it was such a moment of joy. And I have to say, I think I was entirely justified in doing it because, you know, I, I have a modest number of, of followers on Twitter. I don't consider myself to be a social media expert. But this one I just kind of put out on, on a whim. And um, it had, let's see, over 160,000 people have watched it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, okay. So that's a little bit of your decorum totally down, Christiana. Down, down but but your cool, your cool is rising, rising. Sorry, Paul. Well, okay. So look, what? Ha- we're, yeah, no, we're still waiting for Paul's Paul's opinion. So on what happened? What happened? Go. We've got new politics. We've got old politics going out. I know, like Joe Biden isn't like you know thirty, but the point is, we've got a new politics under a new president, and and I think this is where the youth point comes in. And I'm so looking forward actually to talking to uh, Shia later because, you know frankly, I think youth have been discriminated against and that's what inaction on climate change is all about. And she's brought together, you know, along with a whole bunch of other people. The young have kind of captured the zeitgeist behind all of this. Uh, they, they, they can kind of um, express to us all the sort of truth of this crisis. And um, and I think that they had a pivotal role in this election. I hope that the, the global youth movement is going to continue to have a pivotal role and, and usher in new politics uh, so we do things in new and fascinating ways. So I think it's it's such a great point, but there's I mean there's one other thing which and maybe we'll bring this up with Shia as well. Um, when we had Ben Rhodes on the other week, he pointed out that um, Trump had sort of unified everybody collectively against him, and and we all know how that works, right? I mean, you know, I remember in the years before the Paris Agreement, that single pointed focus with a timeline. 
was the key magic piece, right, Christiana, that drew everybody in together in terms of wanting to come together and collectively achieve this, um, which was a major part of the success. And you can argue the same was true around this election, around Trump, whatever else people wanted. And, you know, there's admitting that there's a lot of people that did vote for him. But in the climate movement, um, the, the unifying feature was we've got to move beyond this president and get someone who who um, who believes in science. But now... If you take the example of what happened after the Paris Agreement, you enter into a multipolar world where there's different priorities. People want to push at different speeds with different agendas. It requires a slightly different skill set and a slightly different approach to continue to be effective once you've had a victory. It's quite interesting that. What do you think about that, Christiana, as a, as a campaigner who's worked on many of these things? How do you do that? How do you pivot from sort of opposing something to... Step, you know, to, to getting what you want and continuing to hold things together. Yeah, I think it's the difference between adrenaline and stamina, hmm. right? The campaign requires adrenaline and uh, and unleashes adrenaline in everyone, and uh, and and all of a sudden you find yourself not just um, walking or running; you find yourself truly galloping toward uh, the ultimate goal. But then, once you get to the finish line. Then there is the next race, and that race is much more difficult uh, because you don't necessarily have that adrenaline of the moment that has a short-term um, finish line that everyone is just sprinting for. Uh, it's a much more, it's a different energy, as you say, it's a different skill set, but equally as important, or I would say actually even more important. Yeah. Because if after the adrenaline rush, you just sort of throw yourself on the couch and become a couch potato, then it, everything that you worked for during the campaign is down to naught. So mm. you have to be able to take a rest, you know, everybody take a rest. Have you finished resting yet? And then pick up. And, you know, and then we have to kick in with stamina because this is not a sprint. This is definitely a long, long marathon. And in fact, it's even going to go beyond Biden's four years. And so we have to get prepared for that. And we have to get prepared mentally. We have to get prepared also in the system, systemically, in which some of us have to take up our baton and hand it over to those who are coming with much more energy than we are at this point in life. And that's what I think is so exciting about the youth activists out there, that they are really picking up this baton and being much more demanding, much, much more. Their expectations of what we should be doing are beyond our own expectations. Thank God for that. But just to go back to that bit, point you made, Christiana, about stamina and adrenaline, I think it's such a great point because so many of us live from adrenaline rush to adrenaline rush, right? We sort of, we run at something, we succeed, hopefully, we collapse, and then then something else needs to be run at. And actually people who work in climate can genuinely be quite exhausted. And I think that that can be one of the reasons why. That adrenaline is both exhausting and addictive. And actually that maturing and that realizing that you need to keep going at something with a slightly different skill set, right? The the other thing about the adrenaline and the sprint is the the focus brings everybody together in and of itself. Yes. You have yes. less you have less conversations about what you want. There's more of an assumed agreement around what you want. But then afterwards when you're in the stamina, 
you have a different energy, but you also need to, you know, stakeholder management becomes important. Working out how everybody agrees, how you get together and determine priorities, that stuff that is less sort of front of mind when you're sprinting at something actually becomes that sort of patient facilitation of that becomes such a magical skill to actually hold everybody to make sure that the sum of the parts continues to be more than the individual pieces. Yeah, and it's so challenging, right? Because um, uh, because everyone begins to act and engage from a different uh, from a different gate, let's say, right? We all leave from a different gate, and um, and then we start thinking perhaps more deeply about well, what what do I really want, and how do I want to reach that, and and then differences bubble up uh, much quicker than they do when you're in the adrenaline stage, when everybody's just rushing to the finish line. Um, And it doesn't terribly matter how you get there. You just have to get there. But then when the focus changes to how are we going to do it, um, especially because we have now understood that it is not just about decarbonizing, which is where we were, frankly, 10 years ago. Now we have understood that this is a much more complex issue. And that all everything is intertwined, um, and that uh, social inequalities and biodiversity and human health um, and ocean and and land uh, health and productivity, all of that is intertwined. And so when you stop to think about it, I mean, as though climate change on its own were not complex enough. Now we have understood. Oh my goodness, the universe of of issues that are woven together into this tapestry is almost infinite and yet we have to move forward with it and so when you have that as a challenge and you have so many different points of views and interests and priorities even if we can all agree that all of this is intertwined and interwoven we don't always agree on what the priority is and everybody has their own priority but just one little point I want to make, Christiane, is I think it does, in a sense, become more complex when you include all of those different points, you know, but if we're clever, it may also become easier because we recognize that we're, you know, it's the union that makes the force and you can combine those themes, they come together and prevail in a way you couldn't on just one. So so we're going to go to the interview uh, in just a moment. But just before we do, um, Christiana, you, you um, and you've said many times and, and we agree that the, the amazing thing about the youth movement is, is just that apart from their energy, their strategy is amazing. I mean, their ability to make the right strategic calls again and again based on intuition and knowledge is just astonishing. So not suggesting for a minute that they won't be more than equal to this challenge. But as somebody who's been through these cycles before, it might just be interesting to hear, What's, what's your advice for people who move from those states, from a state of adrenaline to one of stamina? What, what, what would you say you've learned works in making that transition well? Oh, what a good question, Tom. I'm not sure that I can give a very thoughtful answer on the spur of the moment. Thank you for putting me there. Well, why not? Um, You're brilliant. We, we have a brilliant question. We have a brilliant person. Why don't we get a brilliant answer? I don't understand. <laughs> well, I'll try. I'll try. Um, what came up for me while you were um, putting that question forward, Tom, is the shift from head to heart. Um, mm. Because th- the head dictates many very, very fast decisions that are consistent with 
the adrenaline type energy and decision making and pace that we need during that stage of the challenge. But then we, it's not like we disengage our head, but we have to go dig deeper into a deeper energy, a much more grounded energy that A, has to be wiser than our head, has to be better fed than our head, and certainly has to be longer lasting and more open than the energies that it takes for the adrenaline phase. Mm. And it is, it, it, it's a very different type of approach. It's a more mature, if you will. It's a deeper engagement um, and broader engagement than the wedge opening engagement that you need in the adrenaline phase. It's when you connect head to heart mm. and, and are able to use both to continue moving forward um, in a space that has become more complex and much wider. Because if you think about, you know, the, the adrenaline takes us to one tiny little point, win the election, right? And it's like, it, it's a binary, a binary yeah. point in, in our experience, yes or no. But then we open a huge fan of different issues and different challenges that is just, um, as I say, an infinite fan of issues. And to deal with that requires a much deeper and wiser and I think more patient and more listening engagement. It's it's so interesting how we don't, so many of us going to go through our lives without having had taken a deliberate step to learn how we pivot between those two different things. But actually, it's just a core skill, isn't it, to kind of have have an impact. And I mean, I, I, I know that all of us feel enormous amounts of, of faith in the in the youth movement that they'll do this brilliantly. And of course, it's not, you know, it's not on them. We're, we're all we're all trying to make this pivot in our own ways, but just their, their movement is so impressive. Now, we have a brilliant, brilliant person mm. for you to hear from today. Uh, somebody that we have loved for a long time and respected. Uh, Shia Bastida uh, is a Mexican-Chilean climate activist and a member of the indigenous Mexican Otomi Tolnec Nation. She is one of the major organizers of uh, Fridays for Future and of the school strikes and climate activism based in New York City and has been a leading voice for indigenous and immigrant visibility on climate activism. She recently gave a brilliant TED talk uh, called If Adults Won't Save the World, We Will, uh, which I would thoroughly recommend. Uh, but here's the interview and we will be back afterwards for more conversation and then music. Here's Shia Bastida. Okay, Paul and Tom, what we didn't tell you is that this interview is going to be in Spanish. So okay. Okay. No, that's absolutely fine. No problem. No, 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 no problem. Fine. <laughs> it's, it's very good. Better, better, better. Right. Chie, eh, hola, hola, hola. Eh, how delightful to have you on our Outrage and Optimism podcast. Um, you, you and I have done, I can't even remember how many events together, but it seems to me that every time that there is a sunray that comes into an event that means that you are there. So thank you very much for, um, for everything that you have contributed to, to those events that I have been at, but to many, 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 many others. And congratulations for the leadership that you continue mm, to yeah. display. Now, Shia, um, 
You are a Mexican-Chilean climate activist. Uh, if my math is correct, you're 18 years old. Is that correct? Is my yes. math correct? Yes. Okay, good. I got that one right. Um, and you are a proud member of the indigenous Mexican Otomi Toltec Nation. Speak to us a little bit. Now you're in the United States as a student with a student visa, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, could we just have a quick glance back uh, what, what is it like for you to be able to stand today in the public's eye as a member of the Otomi Toltec Nation, very proudly displaying your indigenous origins? And how did you go from there to being active on climate change? Well, thank you, first of all, so much for having me today. I'm really excited. Um, and I think that both my indigenous origin and also how I've become part of the climate movement go hand in hand. I don't think I can separate the two. Uh, a lot of times people ask me, how did you get started? And for me, it wasn't one event or you know one thing that really led me to become part of the movement. It was really a culmination of my upbringing, my ideology and what I was seeing in the, in the, in the world. So for me, my indigenous background and philosophy really is that I grew up with this thing, with this mentality of reciprocity, this mentality of mm. um, what we receive from the earth, we have to give back. There's no such thing as natural resources, it's sacred elements that we have to take care of because they take care of us. So it's a very different relationship to what I started seeing when I started getting older. So that's basically how my my parents raised me with a very attuned um, sense of what our role as humans is. And I saw, for example, my grandfather going every day to protect his ejido. In Mexico, there's this like concept of communal ownership of land. Um, and there were companies trying to come in and buy it off. And he would go every single day up until midnight and sit there like literally physically sit there unprotected. So there were a lot of things like that, that, you know, when you grow up, you think that everybody has your same thinking. You think that everybody sees the world the way you do. And the world I saw the world is this beautiful thing that everybody loved and everybody took care of. So when I started seeing the disconnect, when I started seeing that in my own town, there was uh, waste from factories. In my own town, there were the siding of obnoxious facilities. In my own town... Uh, the river that my dad bathed in was completely polluted. You couldn't even uh, walk by there without having to like run away as fast as you could, as you could right? So to see that disconnect between what it's supposed to be and what it actually is gradually, I guess, woke me up into the realities of our disconnect with the planet. And a turning point really was when my hometown suffered from flooding the day before I moved to New York City. And we were already supposed to move to New York City. My parents had gotten a job at the Center for Earth Ethics. But I left my hometown of forever, of 13 years, without knowing if my community had recovered, how it had recovered, what you know services had been allocated to it. And turns out that it was close to none. And when you think about not only the climate crisis already happening, but affecting communities who are the most vulnerable, 
And considering mm-hmm. that those communities are the ones with the least resources to deal with the effects of the climate crisis. And with the least responsibility for having caused it. The least responsibility of having caused it and also have to deal with the pollution of the institutions that perpetuate it. So for yes. me, it was like everything came together, everything connected. And my dad has been, you know, in the climate movement since 1992, since the first Earth Summit. Oh, That's where he met my mom. interesting. So that's actually where my parents yeah. met. My dad represented youth from Mexico. My mom represented youth from Chile. They oh. met there. They met again in Ecuador. <laughs> so how could I not? You, you know, she. there is a club of those who uh, connect through climate or through COPS. So we have to introduce your parents to this uh, to this club. An increasing number of people are meeting their partners there. But sorry, I interrupted you when you're talking about your parents, how they met because they were both climate activists. Yeah, so basically my dad was representing indigenous people from Mexico, youth from Mexico, and he didn't know English. So my mom translated for him. And that's how they connected. That's how they eventually ended up together. So I've seen my dad give speeches forever. I think that's how I learned to give speeches, not by actually like learning (laughs) or anything, just by absorbing all of my dad's wisdom. My first ever event was in Malaysia for the World Urban Forum, my dad was supposed to go and he couldn't. So he sent me at 15 years old across the world by myself. (laughs) And that's the first time I gave a speech in front of adults. And I saw that somebody that their same age was saying was not resonating the same way that if a youth was saying it. And it's because of the intergenerational, generational uh, nature of the climate crisis. So that's when I decided that I had to step up as a youth and I couldn't wait to grow older to be that person. Wow. So she, it's so amazing to hear your personal story and where you came from. And, and I think, and we, we on this podcast have such respect for you and for the youth movement and the way that you have really changed the whole narrative. And we're, we're very grateful for everything you've done and continue to do our bit, we hope, to kind of move that message forward. I'm curious that you... It's been such a critical role in the last few years for youth to stand out there and say, this is what we actually need, right? This is not sort of like kept in the, you know, the idea of what might be feasible or what's politically possible or economic, but this is what's necessary to actually solve the climate crisis. And that has enabled you and others to have a profound moral authority as you stand sort of in counterpoint, particularly to a president who doesn't understand science. And there's been that real tension which has driven such amazing um, participation and now young turnout in the US election. But just specifically on the US, I'm curious um, on your thoughts around now that the presidency has shifted to somebody who does understand science and does have climate as a priority, um, what does that do to your strategy, what's the role of youth now in that new context? And what do you think is the best way for you to continue to be effective in this in this much changed and improved world that we will have when Biden's in the White House? Well, I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that we have to think about. Uh, of course, we are really happy that we have somebody who understands and wants to listen to the science in the White House. We can't forget the impact that the Trump uh, administration had rolling back like literally dozens and dozens of environmental regulations. Uh, And one of his regulations actually was that you couldn't uh, like undo the work that he undid. So there's going to be a lot more work to reinstate everything. And keeping in mind that those regulations that he rolled back, that the administration rolled back, um, 
we're not even enough to meet our Paris Agreement goals. So we have to yeah. do a lot of work and then do a lot of work on top of that uh, and through a justice lens. So I think that there are a lot of challenges coming up, but I am really confident that a Biden administration is going to uh, be able to to deal with all of those uh, challenges. Uh, but we do have to be really, you know, ground ourselves and not get too excited because Trump is not in the White House anymore. We have to realize that rejoining the Paris Agreement is the bare minimum. That's what Biden yeah. <laughs> said he, wa- he was going to do. And that is the bare minimum. We know that the Paris Agreement is an international, you know, Christiana engineered it, love. Um, <laughs> you know, we know that the, the Paris Agreement is, you know, international, uh, the only international framework that is actually bringing countries together towards a common goal. And the fact that the United States is not part of it right now is heartbreaking. But at the same time, that cannot be it. Right. Mm. You cannot just join the Paris Agreement and said that you did your climate work. So we really want to push Biden a lot, lot further so that he's not only looking well um, when it comes to other countries looking at what the U.S. is doing, but also addressing what is going on uh, locally and also the impact that the U.S. is having globally with its own uh, policies and emissions and all of that. So we know that Biden is not going to give us everything we want but we at least can push him to do, to do so. Mm. We know that the Senate might not be uh, democratic, so we don't know how far we can get, but he does have a lot of executive uh, order authority over what happens with a lot of environmental regulations. So it is our job to keep pushing and not be complacent and really use our activism skills now more than ever because at least there is somebody listening. Mm. It's so interesting. We had uh, we had Ben Rhodes on the podcast last week, formerly worked with President Obama, and he talked about the fact that now there's going to be so many different priorities for Biden, as you say, in a divided administration. And the importance of keeping up that pressure actually is kind of almost going to become more important now, right? Because there's going to be competing priorities and an opportunity to break through. But it's also true that you know, one of the things inadvertently that Trump did was he kind of unified everybody against him, everybody who cares about science. And what we'll find now is it will be, we've got more chance of progress, but it'll be more multipolar. You know, we'll have to balance mm-hmm. priorities in that way. Um, have you given any thought to how the movement can 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 do that? Or I mean, I think that that is a good thing because we have been pushing for intersectionality for a long time. Mm. It's not only about addressing... Uh, you know, race, and then addressing jobs, and then addressing climate. It's about addressing all of them. Um, And I think that the climate crisis is our opportunity to do that constructively, to do that intersectionally. And it also lives up to all the challenges that the United States has to address um, when it comes, like, you know, when it comes to social cohesivity. And also right now, I feel like youth feel feel a lot more hurt because I think this is one of the first elections where we were all told your voice matters a lot. You have to vote. Even though I couldn't vote, I helped a lot of my friends to, to, to vote. So at least I did like my part. Um, but it was so exciting to see that my friends were excited to vote, that it wasn't like a burden, you mm-hmm. know, like, oh, I have class, like, oh. Like, actually, let's go vote. Let's march to the polls. We even had a march in New York City to march to the polls on the first day of early voting. So I think that the excitement around that, and you're right, Trump did unify us against him, which is a little odd, but we can't forget that half the country is not with us. Yeah. 
So it's also about that, about how do we, because we're basically talking like from coast to coast and forgetting everything that goes in the Mm. middle. And it's also about addressing that. How do we address the fact that our over-globalization is meaning that a lot of people are not having good jobs in the Midwest? Addressing the fact that uh, we can we may have food insecurity if our global providers don't live up to um, what the United States needs in terms of food, especially with the climate crisis and how that's creating more food instability. So it is about becoming more local, but becoming more interconnected internationally. So it's like we it's the sweet spot like of globalization and using your own resources. Uh, Yes, there is a very urgent need to unite around all of these issues that we know that are um, intertwined with each other, your intersectionality uh, point. But um, I'm also um, interested in the fact that your pinned tweet on your Twitter account speaks about the need for the youth movement to unite. Um, And so that would tell me that, um, that that is a challenge and that there are perhaps different views among uh, the youth movement, among youth activists, as to how how to move forward. Um, now, mm-hmm. with with a new U.S. administration, will that challenge of the youth movement? I'm assuming that you're talking about the youth movement worldwide. Do you see that there is more space for the youth movement to unite and to speak with more similar voices, um, or the opposite? Well, that's actually a really interesting point that you bring up because I actually forgot that that's my pinned tweet. So <laughs> it's a good reminder. Um, but it ha- basically happened after a conflict of people saying that a lot of youth activists were doing this work performatively. So they aren't actually doing activism. They're just pretending they are or they're just used doing social media activism. And I think that the youth climate movement and the climate movement in general is special because everybody brings so many different skills to the table. So we need graphic designers. We need people who do podcasts, people who do speeches, people who organize, people who write books. And that is what makes us strong. That is what makes us special. Uh, Diversity of tactics, tactics, perspectives, ambition, skills. So that was my, um, you know, attempt to actually, like all the youth who were kind of not fighting, but this, you know, having a little bit of tension and conflict of saying, okay, maybe this person is not organizing as much as they were, but they are doing something else right now. So we have to appreciate that. We have to appreciate what everybody has to bring to the table. Um, and I think that COVID really showed us that the youth movement was excluding a lot of people in some sense, because not everybody can strike. There's countries where people cannot strike at all because it's illegal. Mm-hmm. There's people with disabilities who can go out. Um, so I think that we saw COVID and everything that came with it as an opportunity to diversify the movement and diversify our tactics even further. And that's why I started Re-Earth Initiative, um, my organization, my global organization yep. that has members from, you know, Costa Rica, um, Argentina, Australia, Ireland, India, Mexico, the United States. And we're really trying to make it global because as you pointed out, Christiana, the youth movement in Europe is really strong, but it's not that there are in climate activists all around the world, it's that they don't have the same platforms. Mm-hmm. So uh, I started Re-Earth Initiative because I wanted the youth global climate movement 
to be perceived as it actually is, as this massive wave of youth from all backgrounds who do care and who want to do the work. So yeah, that's my view on the youth movement. And I think that there's a lot of like a lot of things we have to work on. But at the same time, I think that we kind of are working on it like mm-hmm. con- constantly and constructively. Well, let me let me pick up on that, uh, Shia. Like for you know, just one thing I want to say how um, inspiring it is to hear you use some just little phrases. Um, I, I never heard natural resources reclassified as sacred elements. That's profound. That just completely changes the perspective. I've heard you before. You were you were talking a little bit about food, but I, I heard you use the phrase food sovereignty, and that's another uh, phrase I've not heard before. And this notion of intersectionality in in a, in the youth movement is is super interesting. So as we think about the youth movement, uh, I mean, do you see it as an issue of discrimination that younger people are being discriminated against because of inaction on climate change? And you know, we have a lot of people listening to the podcast, and it would be great if you can give some guidance to them about how uh, to 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 contribute to this youth movement because it's clearly a new political force but we're only just beginning to come to understand it yeah so i think that your first question is really interesting because i do think that youth are definitely being discriminated against and not only us as much as my children and my grandchildren mm-hmm. because like what I see companies doing and saying is we want gains right now. We don't really care about what happens later. It is not our role to deal with social consequences. Our role is to help the economy. Our role is to keep the economy going. Uh, We don't have the need to be socially responsible. And for me, when you say that, you're basically saying that the biocultural diversity of my community doesn't matter, that the biocultural heritage of my community doesn't matter, that everything that I come in contact with and will come in contact with doesn't matter. Um, and for me, like, I think that the world right now is engineered in such a way that countries are forced to fall into neoliberal policies because of the World Trade Organization. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, the world trade organization and the World Bank and others are saying, I'll give you money if you open up your borders to companies. And now we are seeing mines, for example, in Mexico that are completely devastating communities. Uh, One of the case studies that I looked at is the Peñasquito mine that uses 13 million gallons of water a year out of uh, an, an aquifer that only holds 10 million gallons of water a year. So it's completely depleting all of our sacred elements and resources. So when I think of that, like, yes, the economy is important, but when you look at the economy, you're basically seeing how the 2% of the richest Americans are handling their stocks. You're not really seeing how people are. You're not really seeing uh, how people are feeling, what they are doing, how what they're going to teach their children and how safe and healthy they are. So we need a complete paradigm shift. And I think that we are capable of doing that. But the fact that you are saying that you don't care about the planet means that you're saying you don't care about like your kids and your kids' kids. And we are the ones who have to inherit this. So I feel like we have kind of done like a tippy toe on if it's discrimination or not. And 
It mm-hmm. definitely is, like 100%. Because it is about our futures and it's about the future and integrity of the planet. It is about dignity. I heard uh, one of my very good friends, um, activist, you know, she said the climate movement is ultimately about joy. Mm. How can we get the most joy yeah, to people? Yeah, yeah, how yeah, can, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, how can people be happy with where they are, what they're doing, what they're working on? And I, th- I think that is it. You know what I mean? We're doing all of this because we want mm-hmm. to be happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're doing all of this because we want our kids to enjoy the planet. We're doing all of this because we want to feel replenished. For generations into the future. Exactly. So I don't care if you like couldn't make as much gold this year because the community was blockading your thing, right? They're doing it because they want to preserve their joy. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we just need to reframe what the planet means to us, how we are like what our relationship with it is. And also like keep that indigenous thinking in mind of we have to think of seven generations past and seven generations after. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> she very um briefly, I, I, I in the lead up to Paris, I had a recurring dream of seven pairs of eyes that looked back at me and asked me, what did you do? And after I had it many times, I understood that those were not seven children. They were seven generations. So it's, um, that image is a, is a powerful um, image for me. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. Um, Honestly, all three of us would love to talk to you for three more hours. Yeah, I've got um, millions more but, questions here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, sadly, uh, our podcast uh, has to, and the, the, this episode has to come to a close. And Shia, um, would you now with the reality that we're facing today and from your perspective in, uh, in, in, in New York City, all the way um, from home, do you feel more outraged about what we have not done yet, the delays still in the system, or are you feeling more optimistic that we have more uh, more wins in our sail? Well, honestly, I think that I think that optimism is a character, you know what I mean? It's an outlook of life. So I am always optimistic. I that's how I live my life. That's, that's very popular. You get very good marks for that here. That's very popular. You get very good marks. That you've come Yay. to the right place. Maybe we get good marks. Maybe you're giving us good marks. Oh, I can't yeah, quite yeah, tell. Yeah. Yeah. We get good marks from Shia. That's we right. We give them to yeah. each other. That's right. Yeah, but I think that outrage and it's it's like I think that we need a form of outrage, which I think is impatience. Like we need to be impatient. We need to say we want this now and we are going to do everything we want to get it, uh, everything we can to get it. So I don't like negative feelings because I think that I sometimes lose a lot of time with climate grief, which I think it's important to make space for. But at the same time, I think that it is more constructive if we keep going, give ourselves time to rest, uh, be regenerative, but do like process all the feelings moving forward. Mm, Nicely put. Shia, thank you so much. Thank you very much for for sharing some thoughts with us. Um, I have this visual image of you with your feet firmly grounded in San Pedro de Dubek and and with your eyes on the stars. And I can't think of a a better image to um, describe you. 
Thank you so, so much for joining us. And we hope to see you in the streets marching all of us together very soon again. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So as ever, with Outrage and Optimism, we get such a privileged opportunity to speak to some of the most brilliant people on this planet. And I would absolutely put Shia right up there in that category. Uh, What do you guys leave that conversation with? I'm I'm just going to jump in with one thing, which is indigenous wisdom. And, you know, uh, when I hear her talk about sacred elements and not natural resources, I I can tell I'm learning, you know, the idea that the the earth looks after you and you look after the earth, these basic lessons um, and, you know, a a mentality of reciprocity uh, with with the planet kind of sounds obvious. It's like my atheist proof of God, you know, I I, I come from the earth, uh, the earth is my God. Um, But um, (laughs) here's the thing. Um, It's not just us kind of mumbling about this, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in their fifth assessment report, Working Group 2, and I am quoting, they say, indigenous local and traditional forms of knowledge are a major resource for adapting to climate change, brackets, robust evidence, high agreement. Natural resource dependent communities, including indigenous people, have a long history of adapting to highly variable and changing social and ecological conditions. So just to sort of say that, um, you know, the, 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 the wisest scientists in their white coats combined with the, the kind of the, the basic part of me that knows right from wrong um, has a lot of time for that learning. Hmm. Um, Paul, I, I'm struck by your term indigenous wisdom. I'm struck on 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 two levels. The, the, the first is I totally agree with you that uh, we have for hundreds of years completely denied and the best of cases underestimated or ignored the wisdom of the first dwellers of, uh, of this planet. And it, we have to remember that when, uh, when economics or the economy was in their hands, we had a much more stable planet than we do mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. And so we have actually not progressed uh, at all in, in that respect. We've progressed in some other things, but we haven't progressed in our stewardship of the stability and the health of this planet. And had we been more respectful and more learning uh, from their uh, wisdom and their experience and and their attitude toward nature, we would be in a better place. Um, The uh, the other thing was that um, at least one third of the standing primary forests are in the hands of indigenous people. And having understood that we totally need those primaries to uh, continue to stand, what better than to ensure that those indigenous people have everything that they need to ensure that those forests are there, not just for them, but for everyone. Um, And the deforestation, current deforestation in the Amazon being the first very painful example of what not to do. But the third level that I was reacting to, Paul, when you said indigenous wisdom, is to realize that, yes, there is a lot of wisdom in the indigenous peoples that, as I said, we haven't paid attention to and we should rescue. But that also there is a lot of wisdom that is indigenous to us, to each one of us, and that 
because the world throws so much at us, so many stimuli and so much news, whether it's fake news or real news or whatever, because of the pace of our life, we tend to close ourselves off to our own indigenous wisdom, which frankly is probably not very far away from the wisdom of indigenous people. And if we take a moment to listen and to nurture that wisdom that is inside of us, we also would be doing uh, much better out there in the stability of the planet. Mm. That's an amazing point. And I think that's, you're right, that our tendency to other things, right, to see them as other and outside of ourselves is so fundamental to this crisis. You know, nature is something out there. It's not us. Indigenous wisdom is something others have. Um, and actually, you're right, sort of like in bringing yourself into that um, can actually make it much more a participatory thing rather than intellectual exercise. That's a really nice reminder, Christiana. Um, I mean, I'd also I, I, just. Sort of... I actually lately, sorry, no, just because you say other, Tom, I have to jump in. I, I've le- lately been um, playing in my head with um, changing the concept of, I quote, the other. We are, we're so much into that, the other, right? The other yeah. person, the other sector, the other organization, the other country, the other government, whatever, the other, yeah. the other. And, and therefore we put this very high wall between us and whoever we put on the other side of that wall. And if we could, as an attitudinal shift, substitute the term the other for the term each other, we would make a huge shift in how we treat all human beings, all living beings on this planet, how we, in fact, even how we treat ourselves. And it, it, it's just a little substitute of a word, but it's a huge mental shift and attitudinal shift that brings down that wall that is built by the other. And if we understand that as we move forward, the only way to move forward is to be very, very conscious of each other and to understand that every one of our interactions needs to keep that in mind, that we are each other, that we are responsible for each other. Very, very different shift to the, the other. It's very different. I love that. And that's that's got so much resonance. I mean, not to go too far into this, but... There's the wonderful framing of power by Adam Kahane that some listeners may know, where he talks about the difference between, you know, in your relationship with power, do you exercise power over others or power with others or power within? And actually those types of power, it's all about power, but are you exerting power to push someone else down or to lift them up and achieve something collectively in the world? And what you just put your finger on there and I sort of am sort of playing with, there's probably a similar different type of othering to collective othering, um, to, to something that's separate from you. But uh, not to go too far into this, but I love that concept, Christiana. That's beautiful. Um, and, and I would just say, you know, in terms of the conversation with Xie, it's slightly stating the obvious, but I, I just get blown away by how deeply impressive these these young women are that are leading this climate movement. I yes, mean, on, on all levels, right? I mean, emotional maturity, strategic insight, deep amounts of knowledge. I mean, on all of those different areas, um, I, I just find it so um, wonderful and, and, and encouraging and inspiring 
that that there are people who are really putting their their work to that. And, and of course, that's not to say in any way that we need to leave the work to them. This is on us to do everything we can at this moment. But that level of dedication and deep dedication and deep competence through knowledge and emotion and strategy is is just really something that you rarely find in people three times her age. So uh, age is clearly no indicator. And how delightful that so many of those youth leaders are women. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I don't entirely think it's surprising, actually. I kind of, you know, there are sort of, you know, the world has a, a massive a preponderance or over preponderance of men in positions of power, you know, ridiculous, like sort of 90, 95% of the heads of large corporations and all the rest of it are all men. And, you know, there just is, seems to be a maturity in women, which is just fundamentally lacking from the way the world is run. And we, you know, we need to, we need to balance those boards because, you know, ultimately there's, there's a sort of empathetic quality to, to female leadership that the world just desperately needs. So, Speaking of brilliant women, uh, we now have the work of another brilliant woman to bring to you today. Millie Turner is a singer-songwriter, and today we're going to bring you an acoustic version of her song, Underwater. Now, Millie um, also is amazingly thoughtful on a whole range of issues. We wrote to her and asked about her motivation for this particular song. And she said that Underwater was actually the very first song she wrote, and she wrote it when she was 16 and had entered a studio for the very first time. She wrote the song on the day after Trump's election in the midst of the anger and frustration. And she says in her 16-year-old head, she wanted to just escape it all and go underwater where you're reminded of the enormity of the planet, the power and steadiness of the ocean in comparison to the unstable and power-hungry events that were going on. For her, it was a song that symbolised hope in a chaotic time. We also asked her about the role of the artist during the climate emergency. And what she said was that she thinks that artists are the communicators and expression is their tool to survival. They have so much power to create things that communicate these issues. They say that political movements are for intellects, but actually art is necessary for movements. Art can inspire and create a sense of belonging, especially in something so urgent like the climate crisis, which is what artists are meant to do, to communicate and to inspire. This is Millie Turner, Underwater. Hope you enjoy it. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Standing by the sea Waiting for the ending But on the horizon there's a new world beginning Put the shout to your ear And listen to the rhythm Singing songs of the sea It's not an illusion We are young, we are afraid But we are free the ashes in the sun
So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. That was Millie Turner performing her song Underwater. I just want to take a second and just appreciate how talented Millie is. I mean, I know you know because you just heard her sing, but guys, it's a bit surreal that we get to have artists like her on the podcast. I mean, the, the level of talent and musical discipline, it's, it's just amazing. Um, her voice is so pure. Links to check out her music video for Underwater and stream and buy her music are in the show notes. So go, go check it out. Outrage and Optimism is a global optimism production produced by Clay Carnell and executive produced by Marina Mancilia German. Global Optimism is... Do you have this memorized yet? Say it with me. Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. I almost got you there. And our hosts are Christiana Figueres, Tom Rivet-Karnak, and Paul Dickinson. Special thanks to our guest this week, Shie Bastida. Okay, I'm looking at what I'm putting in the show notes here. And I'm going to just check with you on this. Did you catch her latest TED Talk? Okay, I got you. Did you see she host TED Countdown with Jane Fonda? I got you. Have you organized or took action with her organization, Re-Earth Initiative? I have got it all in the show notes. 
So go check it out. Shie is out here doing it. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Global Optimism. That's us. We're posting every day all of the amazing things happening in climate. And I guarantee there are things we are posting that you want to know about. So join us online. And if you're enjoying the podcast, it means everything if you could rate us five stars and write us a review. Thank you. Okay, so that's a wrap on this week's episode. Hit subscribe so you don't miss us right back here next week. We'll see you then.